everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. On Everyday Theology today, I have the pleasure of someone who is formational for me, especially because they are uh, a professor at where I'm doing my PhD. And I hope at this point we've been around enough to call him friend, uh, but it's uh, Professor Wolfgang Fondi. Fondi. I literally just said it with you and then I messed it up when I was trying to say it quickly. Who is the Department of Theology and Religion, uh, in the Department of Theology and Religion, and a professor of Christian Theology and Pentecostal Studies, and also the director for the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's it's a pleasure for me too because I think anytime I get to have a, a a podcast with someone who I can help clarify my thoughts as I'm trying to finish up my PhD, you know, these conversations just remind me of the little things that I still need to do. Right. Um, so today we are talking about something that a lot of people who have listened to this podcast over time have heard some kind of dropping of hints, maybe even just directly saying uh, that, you know, I grew up in a very Pentecostal home uh, with Pentecostal, you know, father as a preacher. And one thing about us is that we never really had a good theology, at least a very consistent, rigorous theology. And today we're going to be talking about what is a Pentecostal theology, how it may differ, what it may look like. But before we get into all of that, my first question is just, will you let us know a little bit about you? Let my listeners get to know you, where you're from, how you got to where you are, and anything about your life you'd like to share. Yeah, sure. So I'm Wolfgang, and here in England, we usually drop everything else. So there's no professor involved. Um, but um, uh, I usually uh, help my uh, friends to understand my last name by giving them a little uh, help, uh, because Fondi sounds like I'm a fun guy. <laughs> and uh, I try to be funny enough, so that's the way to do it. Um, I'm a Pentecostal systematic theologian, so I'm a rare breed in a way. That means I'm trained both in Pentecostal theology and in classical Christian doctrines. Uh, but it also means that I look at Pentecostal theology in a systematic way or constructive way, if you will. I've taught for 20 years in America. And then the last five, now six years, I've been here in England in Birmingham at the university, where, as you said, I also direct the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies. So I've really been doing all things Pentecostal, if you will. Yeah, which we need. <laughs> yeah, Very desperately much. so, yes. Um, I, I think maybe we'll just start with a, a question in in defining terms, right? Like as an all good... Uh, research. When we talk about Pentecostal, for those who have been listeners to this podcast who may not be familiar with that group of people, you know, when we say Pentecostal theology and we're just talking about Pentecostal, what do we mean in the use of that term? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think that's uh, really just where the rubber meets the road. It's perhaps the most crucial question we can begin with, right? So why bypass it? 
a lot <laughs> has been said about what Pentecostal means. Yeah. Um, there have been so many voices um, that range from it's one thing to two things, distinctives, right? Five, 10, 12 distinctives, whatever it may be. There are popular things, of course, speaking with tongues. Um, it could be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It could be anointing. It could be a number of things, really. But I think the, the question is really less about how we recognize a Pentecostal as it is about, well, what determines someone mm. to, to do theology as a Pentecostal? What determines right. and motivates someone to be a Pentecostal? So at the risk of stating the obvious, I think what makes Pentecostal theology Pentecostal is Pentecost the reference to Pentecost, right? right? right. So it's, it's the root event that we have for Pentecostal theology. And maybe I should say um, that doesn't mean that everything a Pentecostal theologian does is talk about Pentecost. It's right. not all about Pentecost. I think it's much more important to say Pentecost is like the origin of Pentecostal theology. It's the symbol of Pentecostal theology. Mm. You know, it's like um, Christmas is the symbol of the incarnation, and if you reflect on the on the on the event that the the Word of God has become flesh, then Christmas as a symbol it illustrates it, it motivates it. We know what we're looking at this child in the manger. So in a way, that story is is significant. And when we say what's Pentecostal theology. Well, Pentecost is that story that we look at that illustrates all the elements that belong to it. So any of the other distinctives, they really are determined by this event. They're really determined by this by this symbol that, that uh, we find on the day of Pentecost. And we can organize them and interpret them and understand them and teach them and preach them and live them because we look at Pentecost and it teaches us and it shows us what it means to, right. you know, to be Pentecostal. I, so many people have kind of referred to it in some sense, especially Pentecostals being, you know, so Bible-oriented people, right? Like people of the book as sometimes it's used. Sometimes people have referred to this as a canon inside the canon, right? Like this almost like real special part of an already very special thing to make it very, very basic. Why would Pentecostals, this group that kind of formed around this symbol and this story, you know, why, why did they do that? In the long history of Christian people, what's the difference? Why why was it that they were drawn to that moment, and how is that really shaped? And I don't want to say in comparison, but sometimes comparing can help us kind of recognize these differences, right? Why Pentecostals do that, where other groups may have not focused on it as much? Yeah, and you're saying something very true. That the fact that um, uh, Pentecost is a symbol a symbol of Christianity doesn't mean that all Christians recognize it as such. So when I say that it's a symbol, I stand somewhat in the tradition of someone like uh, Paul Tillich or uh, late 20th century Robert Cummings Neville. The idea that as a, a symbol is somewhat a threshold between the finite and the infinite, between mm. humanity and God between creation and the creator. So this threshold is that it points to God. 
But in in our world, it has um, you know the changes have happened to the symbols. That is the 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 link that we establish between our lives and God that we see in these stories, as in Pentecost or in Christmas. They've become disconnected in a way, and we've replaced our religious symbols with material from the secular world, so that people actually recognize much less than they used to. Mm. Um, yeah. these kinds of events right so there's a disconnect uh, a distance between us and pentecost and in a way you see that throughout history not really an in-depth pursuit of pentecost so when you say people of the book you know <laughs> um, there isn't much in the bible about pentecost at first glance right. isn't there so we say it's not just people of the book but people of one chapter of a book <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that's not actually the case, but it takes much more looking at what is Pentecost all about. Uh, it's not just that day, but that there is really that the event determines all the concerns that you might see in Paul with the churches, all the charismatic life, all the way of living with the Holy Spirit, the look at God from that perspective. All of these things are in the story and they are much broader than, uh, let's just say, the book of Acts. So right. you have to look throughout the New Testament, and you can look much further into the Old Testament to really understand what Pentecost is about and what being Pentecostal is about. Right. You know? Something you said there about kind of the symbols and this like almost reframing of symbols, and, and at the expense of getting us a little off topic here, reminds me of Harvey Koch's book, um, The Market is God where he kind of looks at the symbols that have replaced our really Christian symbols ten, tending to be kind of these market symbols, right? ATMs and malls and amazon.coms and the, and the like as places of worship. But what I'm hearing you say, and maybe something we can talk about, is what is this symbol of Pentecost that the, the Pentecostal people kind of focus on that informs the way they do theology so differently maybe than other groups of people? Yes, and Harvey Cox is not alone in in recognizing the replacement right. and displacement of symbols, you know. So uh, Tillich that I mentioned would speak of the death of symbols. Right. And Neville talks about broken symbols. Um, so that brokenness, perhaps in a different way than he meant it, is 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 what we see when we can't connect well with Pentecostals. I'll give you an example. This may be a typical one, and I may stand alone in this. But when I first um, met Pentecostals, when I was first in a in a service in a worship service with Pentecostals, it was very strange. <laughs> it was yeah. I actually left oh, and, and, and I said. Yeah, I can't deal with this. These people are crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. And I was raised Roman Catholic, and this was very new to me. And in a way, um, you know, the my symbolic world couldn't deal with, couldn't understand what was happening in, in the Pentecostal world. Right. It was very different, very new, right? And I had to adjust my own world to, to be able to function in the Pentecostal world. 
Um, and now I see a lot of times that, um, you know, we see that in others as well who feel like, well, they reject that world. We have very outspoken people who reject the Pentecostal world, right. you know, and um, we struggle as Pentecostals with our own world because we haven't really come to terms with what belongs to it. Why does it belong to it? What are these symbols? You know, Pentecost yeah. is just one symbol among many. Um, and it has to be. It's in a network of symbols. But what else is it? Um, and so that kind of story that we have to tell, we're still in the process of of, of telling it and learning it. You know. Right. But I think. Right. But to your question, um, you know, in a way, we 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 here in Birmingham have um, PhD students who write their work on on Pentecostalism, on lots of aspects of Pentecostal theology. And they're trying to determine what is it? What's so <laughs> unique about it, right? Right. Um, and I keep telling them, well, look, um, in a way, when you say what's unique about Pentecostalism, we shouldn't interpret the idea of unique as if it meant um, uh, exclusive. Hmm. Rather, when you say something is unique, well, you know, Pentecost doesn't belong exclusively to Pentecostals. Right. It belongs to everyone, right? right? It's a gift to the church, right? right? So uh, what's unique is, you know, the way that Pentecostals engage with Pentecost, learn from Pentecost. Um, so what's unique there is the way that um, this kind of theology holds together and interprets and communicates uh, Pentecost. So um, by that, um, I mean, uh, it's really a spirituality. And I stand in a long tradition of those who say that um, Pentecostal theology is unique because it is a spirituality. But what do I mean by that? So when I say Pentecostal theology is a spirituality, it's unique in that sense, then I think it has to do with experience. At the root of someone who is a Pentecostal theologian is not so much their intellect and their thought process and their ideas, but an experience right. of an encounter with God mm, that reflects yeah. Yeah, the encounter that yeah. you see in the book of Acts, that you see at Pentecost. It's a unique encounter. Right. right. So, so experience is at the heart of it. I think also, um, you know, that means for Pentecostal theology, we are talking to others and reminding them of the importance of experience. Right. Not to be afraid of it, to say it's, it's a significant um, way to be informed and to learn about the world and to learn about God. So experience is, is significant. Um, what's unique about it? I think the when you say it's a spirituality, it means that Pentecostal theology is effective. Right. The affections yeah. are, are, are significant to us, right? So uh, Pentecostal desires, Pentecostal passions, Pentecostal feelings, Pentecostal emotions. What does that mean? All of these things, right? Being human, being holistically fully human, <laughs> right. right? That's what that means, and uh, uh, that informs our theology. So we get we get excited, we get we love things, we love God, right? And I say we because I have become a Pentecostal in that way. Right. So I, we live that kind of spirituality. So well, if, if if you don't mind me asking, though, just real quick, as we as you started your story with the, you know, the Roman Catholic part of you experiencing, actually experiencing almost the effective reality of Pentecostals in a service and going, this is crazy. This is weird. 
you know, almost like I can't deal with it. To what degree or what kind of moved you into the space, the space of going, okay, I am one of these actually. And this does help me categorize my own spirituality, my own means of relating with God. Yeah, I think that's a, that's really driving towards the other side of of uh, Pentecostal theology, and that is uh, it, its challenging nature, because mm. what's what's important about it is that the, 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 there's an aim or a goal or a motivation to theology that is transformative. And yeah. when something is transformative, it's always a challenge. It's always a calling. So when you sense this calling, when you sense this, this challenge in your life, that's when you respond. And so for me personally, that's, you know, the, the going out of the service and feeling distanced from it was also a challenge to say, well, why do I feel distanced from it? What's really wrong with it? What are these people doing or thinking or believing that is strange? Is it strange? Is it odd? Um, so it's a calling into a world that says, well, let me talk about God in the way that we have come to see God. What do you think about that? Not yeah. only what do you think about not only what do you think about it. So let's go back to Pentecost. Right? <laughs> yes. So when we look at that story, which is determinative for Pentecostal theology, you see um, that on the day of Pentecost, you have a crowd, just like me or many others, right? They're observing these Pentecostal disciples, if you will, right? The disciples right. on the day. And the first question they ask is precisely: what does this mean? <laughs> right. But there's a shift in that right. from what does this mean to, well, now what should we do? Mm. And that's what I think that's really at the heart of spirituality. It's transformative yeah. because, you know, it's yeah. calling others to say it's not just about what we know and what we understand, uh, but it's about what do we do in response to it? And because it's Pentecost, it's not something fabricated or produced. It's something that, you know, is a, it's an event and an encounter with God. So it's really an attempt to let God call others through the theology of the movement rather than to expound on some truth. It is let God speak to the hearts and the minds of others. Right. And if that happens, I think that's where the transformation is occurring. Right. I, I love that because I think... You know, that that story, of course, is one that as a Pentecostal myself is one that it's almost the one that you just go back to over and over and over again. Again, that's that canon inside the canon thing, right? That kind of like re-reflecting on it again. But one question I might have in, in that, since we do go back to that story so often, is there a sense that we've overloaded that one chapter of one book of the entire Bible in processing meaning or, or have we not? Is there a danger in, in what we do with kind of looking at this one story as a means of kind of going outward from there? Yeah, excellent. That's an important question. And my answer is uh, yes and no. <laughs> at least where I stand right now, I think there is a, a real danger to overload the chapter if we look at that chapter isolated from other chapters, mm. from other books, from other texts, from other testaments, right? So right. it can't just be Acts 2 or the book of Acts and not even just Luke Acts. Everything is embedded in a wider context and right. the wider uh, world. So in that sense, we must uh, be responsible to see it in the wider uh, now reading of scripture. But on the other hand, no, we haven't even yet done enough 
to understand that chapter, to understand that event. We have hardly scratched the surface of what Pentecost really means because uh, we haven't even had time yet to expand and <laughs> right. un- you know, interpret it all. In so, to just give you an example, there is a, a there is a dominant, there has been a dominant discussion about the meaning of Pentecost when it comes to let's say the speaking with tongues uh, and 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 well languages really that we hear on the day and to understand the event uh, to understand what's happening here with the languages we must go back to the root of languages in scripture and that is the story of babel in the old testament and there are right. arguments right there are basically two types of arguments one would say Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. So at right. Babel we have a confusion of languages, right? And at Pentecost we have somewhat we have the we have the resolve of that problem. Um, and there are other opinions about it, but there is much more we need to read about languages, about understanding what's happening with language in the scriptures. What is God doing with languages before we can go to Acts 2 to see what's happening there with languages? What do languages stand for after Pentecost? How can right. Pentecost is to break that? There's a lot to ask for. Think of it this way. Early classical American Pentecostals, when they were baptized in the spirit, when they received, you know, they were speaking in tongues, many of them thought, well, I'll go to China because I I can now speak Chinese. Right. And, you know, and that's a, a real question. Can you? Is that what it is? Is that what that means? Should we expect now that we can speak all these languages? Um, and many of them didn't. Right. Um, now, there's another story to that. And, and th- they stayed where they were, even though they did not speak Chinese or they learned the language, because, the real, the hard way, you know. But right. uh, these questions we haven't even started to ponder yet. So there's a lot of work to do for Pentecostals. My, my sense is, though, that the answers to these questions come again out of experience, sometimes suffering the experience in your right. own life. Right? right and out of our uh, out of uh, the affections and the practices that that form uh pentecostals it's it's almost as if right like thinking about that like those stories of early early American Pentecostalism of the, you know, speaking in tongues, what language is it? here's a train, here's a plane here not really plane, but here's a boat ticket, right like off you go, go do missions work, you know is almost what you were talking about kind of that that immediate reaction of what are we hearing to now what do we do right and almost that that pentecostalism and and i could be wrong in this but we're we're finally into a space i mean you and i are recording this on the cusp of what's called the society for pentecostal studies i mean this podcast will come out after the society meets but it meets every year so if anyone's ever interested right but we're almost in it kind of now in that sense where we've where we've taking a step back to go, okay, what did that mean? And what do we do? But let's think about it a little bit before we just jump on a boat and go and do. Like, let's let's almost engage a little bit further with what does this mean so we know more properly what should we do. Am, am, I, am I wrong in that? Or do you think that's kind of a, a sense that we might be at in this space? Yeah, I think we are. We have been at the space for a long time, um, and um, to so you know earlier I used uh, an example of spirituality that comes from one of my teachers, 
uh, Steve Land. Uh, I could uh, I could use one of my other teachers here, Cheryl Bridges Johns, who would uh, who has said the anointing is not enough. <laughs> And uh, in that sense, mm. I think we have to be careful that as Pentecostals, as much as we rely on an anointing to, to speak and to understand and to communicate, um, theological uh, literacy is very important. Education and formation is very important. And we must, you know, Pentecostals must take it seriously. I'm speaking, I guess, in the sense here to Pentecostals. Right. Um, that, that there hasn't been enough yet um, to educate, to shape Pentecostals. There's still a lot of theological illiteracy among Pentecostals and ignorance towards um, their own uh, tradition and other traditions, towards the history of the movement. Um, you know, we have a very segregated community, whether that is in terms of, say, oneness Pentecostals and Trinitarian Pentecostals, um, or between, say, um, prosperity preaching and those who reject that teaching, uh, or whether it is a racially divided community or trouble with, uh, you know, the role of women in, in the churches. Right. So there's a lot still to be done uh, that demands uh, proper formation. Uh, a proper education uh, so that we can attend to these questions that we're asking in right. a way that's fair, fair to us, in a way that's discerning, in a way that's educating others, uh, you know, rather than, um, you know, um, perpetuating mistakes that might have been done in the past. Right. Now, a lot of people don't recognize or, or just don't under don't know that this is a, a reality that you know for for Pentecostal theology even though it is newer and it's kind of it's in its infancy still I think we're we're growing out of that infancy but we're still working right with centers like the center at Birmingham and other places really trying to almost provide the framework, right? I mean, you just wrote a book on Pentecostal theology not too long ago, a couple of years ago, right? That provided yet again, a, a framework for this is what Pentecostal theology looks like in a five-fold gospel reality. So we're still kind of in some of that framework work, but there's been a lot of ways in which Pentecostals have, their theology has influenced the church. It just may not, or the larger theological world, but it just may not be really well stated. How has that happened in, in some senses where Pentecostal theology has a, had a greater contribution and maybe where else is it going to be contributing in the future? Yes, um, I think that we need to take stock of uh, Pentecostal um, theology and its impact and its influence. Um, I think it may be fair to say that for most Pentecostals, the impact is as a pneumatological movement. Hmm. Um, but when I say that, I don't mean to say, well, the impact is only because it's a movement that focuses on the Holy Spirit right. or that focuses on the charisms, the spiritual gifts. That's not what I mean. When I say pneumatological movement, I come again from the symbol of Pentecost. That is, at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out and right. then a lot of things happen. Right. Right. So yeah. what happens, I think, is the impact that Pentecostal theology has had and is having is partially because it's a global movement. 
It's a global theology. It's not a parochial, it's not a local theology, which is mm. what some were making us believe that we're not a tradition that, uh, you know, we don't really uh, have much to say. Well, we have a lot to say and we speak it in many languages. Uh, right. That's, right. And that's very true right. for Pentecost, but also for us. So um, most uh, Pentecostals are not uh, white uh, northerners. Right. Most Pentecostals are in the Global South, and most of these Global South Pentecostals are not educated, theologically trained voices, but they do theology. Right. Um, so, right, so it's important that we recognize that it's not just books that you may not see on the shelf that speak for Pentecostal theology. It's the preachers and the teachers, the men and the women and the children that are speaking that language. So global theology well, that's what we look for at Pentecostals. Uh, so that's one aspect of being pneumatological for me. Mm. Um, I think another is, again, looking at Pentecost, um, it's a missionary movement. What's mm. more important, right, from Pentecost than to say, here the church is sent out and it's empowered and equipped to go out. So the emphasis of a missionary movement on evangelization, on the gospel, is essential to what Pentecostals have contributed to the global right. uh, theological agenda, right? So the, a new way, perhaps, of presenting the gospel, a different way of presenting the gospel, uh, and that's what my book has been trying to, to, to convey. So I think that's an important part. Um, perhaps more... Um, challenging, we could put it, is that Pentecostalism is a liturgical movement. Hmm. And I, I think I'm really stepping out there and saying yeah. that, you know, because in the history of Pentecostalism, people would have said the opposite. Right. right. It's it's not a liturgical movement. Even it's an anti-liturgical movement. <laughs> right. right. The liturgy is no liturgy. Right. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, I think what Pentecostals have shown uh, the wider church is that uh, they do have a concern, constant concern for what should we practice? How do we practice our faith? And when do we do these things? How do they belong together? All of these are liturgical questions. It's all about praxis. It's all about doing your faith, not just sitting back right. and thinking about it, right? Even though thinking is doing it, it's a holistic doing. Right. Um, so, right. So, your hands, your heart, and your head, they're all coming together uh, in that sense. So, I think that's really an impact on the wider Christian world and on the church. So you see Pentecostal theology in action because it's a, it's a liturgical impact right. that you see and you can measure. That Obviously, it's most um, 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 measurable, I think, when you, when you see at the spread of the charismatic renewal movement in the mainline churches. Right. But it's not all about speaking in tongues. It's, it's all of the different practices that you see, whether it's dancing, whether it's singing, whether it's jumping, whether it's <laughs> prophesying, right? Whether it's laying on of hands. Um, so there are a lot of rituals that are typically Pentecostal that have now made their way into the wider church. And it took the wider church a long time to even begin to recognize these things. Right. Um, right. So I think that's, that's really where... Um, where Pentecostal theology has made an impact. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I wouldn't conclude at least there to say perhaps the most significant way is that uh, Pentecostals challenge the church to be transformative. Mm, Without yeah. transformation, 
you don't really have a, a, a Pentecostal theology without right. the call for transformation, right? Right. And so my example has always been the altar call is a is a way a metaphor for understanding how Pentecostals operate. Yeah. And right. And at the heart of the altar call is uh, is the theologian, if you will, the theological voice that goes out and it calls others to encounter God, but it calls them to the altar. There has to be a transformation happening at the altar. Right. And, you know, and that's really what Pentecostals have given the church, that that drive and desire to meet God, to have a change. That's really uh, what, what we see in the 20th century coming out of the Pentecostal movement. Right. I think I think two things really hit me in what you were saying, you know, and whether we want to follow up with them or not. You know, when you talk about this like holistic reality of thinking for Pentecostals, you know, I, I was reminded of in the in the seventies, especially in Pentecostal, I wasn't alive and, you know, I wasn't around, but from the histories and from, from family members, you know, such a priority to hold to this really kind of, uh, belief with immediacy that Christ was returning today, right? Like every day Christ was returning that hour, that minute. And yet, even though that was not just something that Pentecostals said, but was really kind of deeply kind of bedded within their kind of way of being, they were still doing food pantries and still out and not just evangelizing to say, I want you to take me with me, but how do I take care of those who need to be taken care of? Because the belief, the beliefs kind of moved them holistically, right? It wasn't just a, because if they truly believed Jesus was coming back at any hour, why not just sit and wait, right? But there was a, there was an immediacy towards movement and action. But the second thing that you said that really kind of spawned, you know, a thought when we were talking about that reflection on needing to kind of think more about what we're doing, I think of something that we've had now a couple podcasts on which is prophecy, that that very thing that you brought up, right? What do we do with this thing called prophecy? And more so now than ever with certain preachers, quote unquote, prophets wanting to talk about elections and talk about cultural events and try to, to actually make these judgment calls on things that are happening. And for Pentecostals, we're the ones that almost have to deal with it, right? Because we're the ones that created the space for saying, we believe in prophecy, but have we really sat down to say, but what is that, that we need to be practicing really well? Right. And um, obviously, prophecy is an important part of the history of Pentecost as well, um, and a, a way of speaking to others about our expectations of God, our ambitions and our dreams about God and our hopes. Um, uh, but um, of course, we know from the history of Pentecostalism that, um, well, we know from the history of scripture <laughs> that not all <laughs> prophecies are true. Right. And not all <laughs> prophets are uh, in that sense true. So right. there needs to be a discernment and there needs to be a judgment 
judgment um, in in a way of the prophetic message, um, and that's something that uh, yeah we still are in the process of uh, understanding as Pentecostals. It's part of that circle, but. At the same time, I would say, yes, um, let's not judge the movement or its theology in that way, though. And one way right. that I have, right, one way that I portrayed this um, is that um, because Pentecostalism is so young, uh, we can speak of it just in about uh, over 100 years, 120 years, um, it is um, uh, fair to say that as a young movement, uh, we have a movement that shows itself in extremes. And the right. extremes, right? The extremes are right. part and parcel of what it means to be Pentecostal right now. We right. may be, you know, we may have the luxury of having a very subdued, um, um, balanced Pentecostalism in a few hundred years. But for right now, it's a movement of extremes. And when we take out the extremes, we actually limit what we look at and we limit mm, what we think of as Pentecostal. Yeah. Right? So yeah. we'd like to exclude those and we'd like to exclude the others so that our Pentecostalism is the nice one in the middle. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But we have effectively limited the movement as a whole. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what it would become. You know, It could be just as white uh, North American as it could be uh, uh, black African. Both of them are limitations. Right. So, we, right, so we better look at the extremes take them as what they are and understand that when you're dealing with god in an encounter with god there is a certain surplus dare i say drunkenness that <laughs> yeah. shows itself on the day of pentecost yeah. right and that drunkenness isn't to be you know excluded it's part of it so okay um let's be drunk is what pentecost what P peter might have said at pentecost um, you know, and um, and and just show what that really means, though. Right. right. So we're not drunken with beer or with uh, any other alcohol. We're drunken with the spirit would be perhaps a response, just right. as intoxicating um, as yeah. anything else. Right. And um, I think that's an important part of saying, OK, so let's take that as the problem that we have now that we recognize the extremes. What do we do about them is the next step. Um, mm, so yeah. we need to, right, the Pentecostals need to develop criteria of discernment so that they can ask these questions. Like, yeah. you know, who do we speak to? Is this prophecy building up or is it destroying? Is this prophecy positive or is it, you know, negative? What does it say about God? Does it show the right image of God that others would right. agree to? Right. So there are lots of questions we can develop. Um, and that's something we need to ask uh, ourselves, you know, to what extent um, um, do we, can we do that? I, I really appreciate that because I think for so many people, it's really easy to look at Pentecostals by the extremes, primarily because, unfortunately, those are the ones that tend to get the most recognition, it seems. You know, I, I still think of even someone that I graduated college with that has been now in like the Wall Street Journal because of their quote unquote prophecies that didn't come true and how they've responded and all this, you know, where it seems like those are the ones that tend to get the most airtime, the most recognition. But I, I appreciate that stance because it is really easy, on the other hand, to just cut them off, right? To go, nope, that's not that's not what we are, and nope, that's not what we are. Mainly because we can see some of the negative outcomes of those extremes, but we also do that kind of, as the idiom says, throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
we're much ready just to throw away the prophecy or throw away the speaking in tongues or throw away these things that have become have found problematic spaces in these extremes or like prosperity gospel messages right like that's been a a, a kit a continual kind of conversation, it seems, within a lot of Pentecostal spaces to go, did we cause this? And if we did, what do we do, right? How do we respond to now the fact that there is this wider world of Pentecost or, uh, sorry, prosperity gospel message that seemed to find some fruitful ground in Pentecostal thought and thinking, right? Yeah. And I think that really illustrates that um, the challenge, the most immediate challenge that um, the Pentecostal theological community has is its, um, its, its diversity. And that right, this diversity that um, a lot of voices can speak, um, and uh, in a way, too many voices speak because they're all allowed to speak. But there isn't a a, a, a say a unison in the voices. Right. So I, I'm, right. So I'm not saying that we need a magisterium or we need some kind of uh, you know um, a voice that speaks on behalf of others, but rather that there are ways found that allow the voices, although different to speak in the same way so mm. they're recognized uh, as yeah. Pentecostals, right? So there's still a bit of um, that kind of uh, sibling rivalry, if you will, where the <laughs> brothers yeah, and sisters, they speak in different ways. Um, we, I think there, there is a challenge in a way to recognize that someone isn't your brother or sister uh, as far as Pentecostal theology is concerned. They're speaking in, in, in ways that don't belong in that community. But there's also the challenge to say that uh, just because someone speaks differently uh, doesn't mean we should exclude them from our community. In fact, some may not be able to speak at all, uh, whether that's because of a disability or because of a lack of language or because of a lack of training. We can't exclude those voices. They may speak, you know, they may speak to us not in words, but in in actions or in other ways. Um, So that's a very different Pentecostalism. Um, you know, I might say that Peter, uh, if I can borrow the apostle again here, <laughs> he, he might say, you know, uh, eloquent education I do not have, uh, training and schools and money I do not have, but what I have I give to you. And what they give is is, is something much more uh, acute to the situation. Yeah. So it's right. And this desire to say, let me lay hands on you and heal you, maybe overriding any kind of uh, discernment or care. And that is not necessarily a problem. It is part of what it means to be Pentecostal. It's a it's an effective way of saying, let's go for it. Let's go to it because nothing <laughs> is more important than transformation, right. healing, salvation, meeting God. That's what's important, isn't it? Right. Right. So in that sense, um, we just need to find that kind of uh, you know community and building a Pentecostal community, a theological community. That's the immediate, uh, I think, the most immediate challenge that we have in the world when it comes to you know the Pentecostal charismatic movements. Right. It's a it's a in some ways a better better means of speaking about the radical openness of God. Right. Or the the better way of kind of 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 giving context to that radical openness that sometimes we don't have the language for right and what i in the last few minutes that we have uh, as well as shouting out your own work maybe talk a little bit about kind of the pentecostal theology and the text that you wrote to try and help 
provide some of that language and thinking about that radical openness to God? Yes. Um, well, I don't even need to really highlight just my own work, but I think the attempt in the last 20 years has been by Pentecostal theologians to articulate a certain narrative uh, that uh, a story, if you will, mm -hmm. that is Pentecostal. So when we say, what does it mean to be Pentecostal? We have to articulate it in some way. Um, when we ask uh, what's unique of Pentecostalism, we have to say it in some way. And Pentecostals, they tell a story. They tell a testimony. This right. is how it is. This is how it was with me. Right? But <laughs> right. this, yeah, this telling, though, well, what is it? What is that story? That has been the question in many people's minds. So uh, in my own work, I have uh, simply observed what others have said, that this story is really the story of Pentecost. But it's not a retelling of the biblical Pentecost. It's the story mm. of our own Pentecost. Yeah. Right. And our own Pentecost simply echoes the elements, the motifs, the, the steps of the story. And right. the fourfold or fivefold gospel is one way of doing that. So salvation, sanctification, spirit baptism, divine healing, and a mission, a commissioning to the kingdom of God. Those are stepping stones um, that maybe, you know, illustrate that story of Pentecost and Pentecostal theology. So I think that's where the future lies, that we can come to that voice as a movement because we agree what our story is. Yeah. And right. But we need to be careful here. Right. So that when we sing, this is my story. This is my song. It's not an exclusive story or song. It's not a white one. It's not a male one and so right. on. Right? right. It's a story that allows all the others to come in. And that's the challenge. We are not a movement that is privileged to have a particular story. We have a diversity of stories. Yeah. How do we bring them in? That's the challenge, but that's also the exciting part. You know why? Because anybody listening to this podcast can say, well, I can be, I can be included because right. this story is big enough right. to, to include me in this because God is big enough in this story to ask me in. And I think that uh, that's the realization that when we face Pentecostal, that what, that's what they're trying to tell us. Right. And why there might be some out there who like to call Pentecostals heretics or decry Pentecostals because it doesn't it doesn't so easily create boundaries around ideas or groups. It really is allowing more expression than I think some people in the church are really comfortable with, right? Yeah, and I've written about that uh, a long time ago as well. And uh, the way that I'd framed this was essentially this challenge, this confrontation that is created because Pentecostals don't recognize themselves in the history of the church. And the church doesn't recognize itself in the history of Pentecostals. Right. So right, the outcome has been for me to say, well, um, it's because Pentecostals are really playful. They don't mind experimenting. Mm, they don't mind yeah. being curious. They don't mind asking. They don't mind venturing out, even at the risk of being wrong, uh, because they question anything that stands in the way of this experience of Pentecost, of encountering God in new right. ways, right? right? And that's simply what they do. So uh, when we recognize this, I think we can live with it much more easily. Yeah. And say, okay, yeah, let's go out and explore. Who doesn't like to improvise? Who doesn't like to play? I certainly do. Um, and uh, I think so do Pentecostals. Right. 
I think that's a really, I think helpful and wonderful way to kind of help help people start framing kind of their mindset around. And, and I, and I've said it on the podcast before. And I think one of the things that kind of saved me being a Pentecostal was actually that exploration and recognizing something that had called to me for a long time. And it was Daniel Costello's work, you know, Pentecostals as a Christian mystic tradition that allowed me to have language and space to something that I was feeling, exploring, experiencing that I didn't realize that Pentecostal had room for, right? That this Pentecostal, uh, this Pentecostal umbrella really. Um, and so I think that can be helpful for a lot of people who are trying to understand how do they engage with this thing called Pentecostalism and with Pentecostals and how might it further open their expression to again, openness to God and experience with God. I think that's right. really, really beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time for having this conversation. Um, I'm sure I'll see you here shortly on some SBS uh, videos and, and message boards and the like, as we're going to enjoy our conference in a hybrid format this year. Uh, and of course, for all of our listeners to know, I get to see you monthly at our PhD gatherings uh, to hear about what's happening at the Center for Pentecostal Studies. But thanks so much for taking the time and I appreciate you uh, having the conversation with me. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks very much for the opportunity.